last week we had shared a little bit that we wanted to be available to you as pastors to pray with you after service. And it was a very rich time for me just to get to pray with some of you after service. And our whole goal of that is just continuing to build a culture of God dependence, a culture of prayer. That's really all that is. And so if you're here today, and no matter who you are, if there's just something we can be praying for you about going on in your life, uh, Bill and Kim are going to be available after the service just down front. Just come find them. Let them know. They're not going to do counseling with you. They're not going to solve a lot of problems. They're going to pray, though, that God would. And that's what we do. So that's available right after service today. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have notes that you got in the worship program, you can get those out. And we'll be kind of dialing in today. We're in this series called This is a Football. If you join us today for the first time, we're in message 10 as we're working our way through this book. And these words are these famous words that were code for, we're going back to basics. Vince Lombardi telling his team as they began a new season, let's go back to basics and start from the ground up. Well, that's what our desire has been in starting together a new era, a new season. Let's begin by going back to the basics of what does God say his church, because that's what Trinity Church is, is his church. What does God want his church to be about? And so we're studying through the book of Ephesians to try to identify that. What I loved about one of the songs that Nate picked today was in that phrase, uh, the song's made alive, if ever I forget my true identity, remind me who I am. And what a great phrase that really embodies what this book is about. A few weeks ago, if you were with us, we did these, hello, my name is, and we stuck them on these banners and and, um, the poster boards. When you walked in today, you would have seen them. That's who God says you are. Now that you're in his family, now that you have been made new and brought into his family formally, a slave on the block, now you're actually his son, his daughter. And what we saw in the first half of Ephesians was really pushing, pushing, pushing on that idea. And now that thread, that foundation is going to carry us into the second half. And what we're going to learn, if we learned in the first half whose we are, Now in the second half, we're going to learn how to live out whose we are. Be very careful. That's not code for here are the new rules. Conversations that Bill and I have had in the last few weeks have really brought this to my mind. That would be the worst travesty is that you would walk away from today and subsequent messages in the end of Ephesians thinking, oh, here's the the rules. Here's now the stuff I'm supposed to be doing, and that's really all it is, is a new to-do list. And I want to tell you that's not in any way what God intends this material we're going to look at today is to be some new set of rules. What God is saying is this, in my home, among my children, there is a culture that I am about, a culture I've designed, and when you live according to it, you live the life I always intended you to be. Remember last week, we looked at this metaphor that God just really clearly gives, and I had these two shirts. Remember my really cool bedazzled um, clubbing shirt and then my marriage shirt, okay, my married shirt. And, and in between those two, we talked about that, that God says, take off the old Be made new in the attitude of your mind and then put on the new. So other verbiage for that, disengage from these behaviors and now engage in these. And that's really this incredibly beautiful process. What was powerful to me last week was between the services, someone came up and talked to me and said, you know, that whole idea 
of, of just approaching a change in behavior has been embraced by the psychiatric world and the psychology world. And, and, he, and he mentioned the name of that kind of um, counseling method. But what was powerful is that his own words were, but the hard part is that for the, those I'm working with who are not in Christ, they're doomed to failure. And I want you to hear the power of that statement because it's not the fact that the method is flawed. It's the fact of the absence of the presence of the Holy Spirit is the change. So I don't want you to hear a try harder message. What I want you to hear is this is God's design. It was the life you were built for and the way to engage it is in a partnership with God. You do what you're called to do, disengaging and engaging and let the Holy Spirit give you the strength to do it. That's this next section that we'll be looking at. I'm excited to dive in today with you and find out what we're going to do, even thinking of our metaphor we've been using of of a team. Today we look at the practical implications of new uniforms. Not just something to put on, but someone to become. That's what we're diving into. Let me give you two important things right off the bat. This is going to sound so weird. Let me say it, and then you can react. I'm not going to tell you anything new today, of which you go, why on earth did I come? Because there was great music. You should, no, there was great music. But what I'm going to tell you today is there's nothing about the morality of living in the family of God that I'm going to tell you you didn't already know. But what I am going to push on is that maybe what you haven't processed before is not only this truth of both what to disengage from and what to engage in, but maybe you've never really connected the dots as to why, why to actually live this way. And furthermore, maybe we've never connected this dot to how does the power of the Holy Spirit in my life enable me to do this? So the truths, the, the, the realities themselves may be common, but what may not be are these other implications. And you'll see what I'm saying in a minute. I just wanted to forewarn you so then you didn't go, man, Todd, that is a duh statement, okay? I wanted to give you a heads up. Let me show you the big why of this passage. In your Bibles, look at Ephesians 4.30. I think this is the whole big picture idea, the why concept of this entire passage we're looking at. I'm going to, in a sense, pull it out of context, but I think you'll see it's the umbrella under which everything else lives today. It says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't bring grief, don't bring sorrow to the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. Now, if you read that, you're thinking, if you've been with us throughout this series, those words are familiar. Yeah, they do. Look back, Ephesians 1.13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, what? Until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul is making a very obvious allusion back to what he said in Ephesians chapter 1. And he mentioned, even from the very beginning, that God has given us his very spirit to indwell us. His presence among us, like not just us generically or us plurally, us individually. The Spirit of God resides in you. So what Paul's going to say today is that the Spirit of God that you have been marked in, sealed with, goes with you, hears what you think, walks through your life with you. Don't bring him grief because he lives in your body. 
He lives inside of you instead. And what we'll find out today, the great news, there's great ways to bring him joy. By engaging in the things that God says, this is a part of our family culture. So we're going to dive in and look at this. Today, what we're going to find are some great truths. Number one in your notes, disengage from falsehood and engage in truthfulness. Disengage from falsehood and engage in truthfulness. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, every time that you see in the Bible the word therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? Now, it's fascinating. We, we found a therefore in, in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, in, in view of these realities, live a life worthy of the calling of God, in view of God's mercy. So Ephesians 4 almost is like looking backwards to the whole first part of the book, the whole first three chapters. In light of that, do this. Now we have another therefore just a few verses later, 24 verses later. And I think you could safely say that all of what's been going on in chapter 4, especially last week's passage about taking off and putting on, in light of that truth, in light of that process and as it were that method, put off falsehood. Interesting. It's the exact same word when it said put off the, new, the old person, put off the old man. That's the exact same verb. So Paul's definitely making correlations to a theory, as it were, a theoretical model to use, and now the actual activity, the actual issues that are to be engaged. Put off falsehood. Falsehood, this word, it encompasses everything related to deceit and deception, It encompasses flat-out lies. It encompasses uh, most of the truth, kind of truth-telling, but not all of the truth. These are to be replaced, and I love it, in the Greek it says, speaking truth to one another, truthing. Truthing is what we are to do instead. And that's one of those things I told you, you're like, duh, I knew this, Todd. We're not supposed to lie to each other, okay? That's not a game-changer. Okay, well, hold on. Why? Why is speaking the truth, why is truthing so important to do that with each other? And look at that phrase, for we are all members of one body. Code for we're all on the same team. Why is truth-telling so important for being a community, for being a family, for being one body? Well, think of it this way. The biggest problem with deception and lying, you already know the answer, it erodes trust. It erodes trust. A person that you know, think of this for a minute. Think of a person in your relational world, you probably don't have to think hard, who you would say, this person stretches the truth often. You might even go so far as to say this person basically is a liar. I know it's a really harsh term to say in our culture today, but that's characterized by someone who speaks lots of lies. That's a liar. So think of someone who who falsifies the truth often, and think of that person. Here's the interesting thing. Often, what goes along with that person are a lot of wonderful characteristics, usually very winsome, often a people pleaser, could be very kind, could be very generous, all of the above. But the fact that that person consistently doesn't tell you the truth, or at least tells you their version of it, guess what? You don't trust them. It's as simple as that. We don't trust untrustworthy people. And the problem with that is that because we live in community, that's a problem. 
Trust is essential. In his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Patrick Lencioni, he wrote, he says this, as he's helping people understand the dynamics of what makes for a good organization, what makes for a good team, I would dare say what makes for a great community of believers is that everything is built upon trust. Take a look at the picture. In his book, Five Dysfunctions, he says these five realities are are what is going to tear apart, what's going to break apart a team. So think of it like a pyramid. It begins on the foundational level. The first issue he always addresses within an organization is trust. If there's an absence of trust, you're not going anywhere. You don't get to proceed to the next issue or even all the way to the top if trust is not in place. So that's why it's powerful to me when Paul says, hey, we need to put aside falsehood, disengage from this, and instead engage in truth-telling. Why? So we can develop trust among each other. Huge, beautiful point. For those of you today who are here who are married, for those of you who are a part of some sort of athletic or community team, For those of you who work in an organization, for those of you who have friendships, guess what? I've included everyone. You know how important trust is. And the Bible knew it first. God said, don't do things that erode and destroy trust. Instead, and watch this, instead, do things that build it up. I wasn't going to say this. It just came to my mind, but I'll I'll throw this out. This is, to me, a very powerful reality this recently my very, I think I've told you in different, maybe from the candidating time or whatever, but I told, everyone I tell this story to is absolutely impressed with Trinity Church when I tell them this. The very first contact I had from the search team was Bob Tincher, and Bob said, hey, uh, we, we'd le- like to have a conference call. It was him and Doug, and they said, we need about an hour and a half. And I'm like, okay, and it's probably going to be like a lot of questions and very appropriate, so I said, fine. And so we set up the appointment, and I remember calling, and we have this conversation. From the very beginning, the first words out of Bob and Doug's mouths were this. We needed an hour and a half because we need to put out all of our dirty laundry. This is who we are. This is where we've been as a church. This is where we're, we're hopefully going. But here is who Trinity Church has been. And obviously, everything about Trinity Church is not dirty laundry, but there have definitely been issues. And they laid that all out there for almost the entire hour and a half. And I got to tell you, I got away from that phone conversation. I was so incredibly impressed with that kind of transparency, that kind of vulnerability. And I will tell you, every time I've repeated that story, and that's been a phrase that went all throughout my candidating experience, trust begets trust. It, it made me very comfortable to be very forth telling about everything about me and my family as well. Everyone I tell that story to is incredibly impressed by the leadership of Trinity Church, that there would be this sense of, we don't want to have anything in the closet that we're not going to first put out there and say, you need to know this about us. That is powerful in the body of Christ, that we would be a people who say, we want to be truth tellers, not those who speak falsehood. Why is that so important? We're on the same team. Number two in your notes, disengage from sinful anger disengage from sinful anger. Ephesians 4, 26, 27. By the way, this is fascinating. This is the only one in our sequence today that doesn't have an engage. 
And I don't want to make much of that. I'm not going to make one up. You know, it's just not there. But I think what's fascinating is I caught that and I thought, this is interesting. Paul is talking primarily on this issue of simply what to pull away from. Let's see what he says. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, we have three concepts, comments made right here. I want to look at each of them briefly. We don't have nearly the time today to get into the topic of anger, but we will because it is so prevalent in our lives. Here's the first aspect. Dealing with the issue of anger, um, he, he talks about it through the lens of when you become angry, disengage from a sinful expression towards others. Now, much is made often in Christian circles about maybe a phrase you've even heard or used before called righteous indignation, right? It's righteous anger. I am angry, right? And here's the thing. Be careful, by the way. You noticed I chose my words well. I didn't say disengage from anger because inherently the Bible doesn't say that all anger is sinful. I just think about 98% of it is. But it doesn't say that all of it is, because this passage is clear about this. This righteous indignation, the justified anger because God or another person is being violated. But here's what I want to put out there. If you think this is what your constant problem is, Todd, it's really a struggle for me. I'm constantly angry because God and others are so violated and there's so much injustice. Well, let me ask this question. If we're honest with yourselves, if you're honest with yourself, we don't often become angry because someone is being mistreated unless that someone is us tends to be the root of most of our anger. It's not that someone else is being dealt with unjustly, it's that I'm being dealt with unjustly, and therefore I'm angry. As a result, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. What's powerful is we need to kind of go back and look at this. If you notice in your Bibles, the first part of that verse was in quotations. Did you notice that? Okay, well, that means that we're quoting somewhere else in the Bible. We're actually quoting back at Psalm chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You can look at the screen. You don't have to turn there. This is what um, Paul is saying. He's quoting back, and here's the thing. Whenever we read in the, the New Testament, whenever a psalm especially is quoted, you have to know that when a, a, a writer of Scripture invokes even a phrase from a psalm, he really wants you to look at the whole thing, to look at the whole psalm. Like anytime that Psalm 119 is quoted, you're going to have to read a while. It's got like, you know, 300 verses. So, but anyways, when, when a psalm, so I read Psalm 4 and really got the whole context. What's going on in Psalm 4? It's written by David. And David is incredibly angry and actually is demonstrating righteous indignation because God is being um, treated poorly by his enemies. Yahweh God, Israel's God, the one true God, is being desecrated by his enemies, and even David himself is being treated wrongly. And then that brings us in the sway. Here's the fascinating thing. It's very obvious that David is using I and, and whatnot. He actually, in verse 4 and 5, he's talking to an audience. He's telling you something. And it's very interesting because after verses 4 and 5, he goes right back to me again. But whatever the audience is, maybe it was his mighty men. You remember them. Maybe it was groups of people that he was actually, as he's sharing his story, like you would maybe your testimony, you take a minute to give some instruction. I don't know who the audience is, but today it's us. This is what he says. In your anger, do not sin. Now watch this. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. 
offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Can you leave that verse up for a minute? I want to look at it real quick. In your anger, do not sin. It's exactly quoted for us in, in uh, Ephesians 4. But look at the rest of it. So the sin or anger is an issue. Anger is what's going on. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. You've heard me use the phraseology before that what's helpful to us in our walk with the Lord is not to keep looking out the window, but start looking in the mirror. When we're angry, that's all we're doing is looking out the window at they and them. But if we'll stop and look in the mirror, which is what that's saying, when you're on your bed, search your hearts. Ask the questions. What is it with me? Is, is, am I a, a playing some dubious part in what's going on in my life right now? Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Keep doing the things that honor God when you're angry. That's what that is saying. And what I find so fascinating is even that last phrase, and trust in the Lord, that's usually the biggest problem with our anger is that we're saying, God, I have to avenge myself. We never say it, but our actions and our thoughts betray it. And what is, remember, you remember just like I do, this great passage, Romans 12, 19, this is what it says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but what? Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This is the easiest thing in the world for me to tell you if you're struggling with bitterness today. And the hardest thing in the world for you to hear. But this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, back to David in uh, Psalm 4, and now Paul again in Romans 12, that in my anger, there is a way to deal with anger correctly, and there is whole bunch of examples of how to deal with it sinfully. Paul says, disengage from the sinful expression of anger and instead engage in the right approach. And that right approach keeps coming back to trust God to deal. Leave room for the wrath of God. So when there is a potentially angry situation between you and someone else, when are you to go to him? When are you to go to her? before the sun goes down. Look at that phrase, before the sun goes down. And I look at, this is what I want you to write in your notes. It is vital that we keep short accounts. It is vital in our community, in our family relationships as the body of Christ that we keep short accounts. We go to someone before the sun goes down. Now, for some of you who are literalists, that's great. It's like literally before it gets dark. Now, it's a problem when you live in Alaska in the winter because it kind of never goes down. So I don't know how that works. But the point is that's, that's the essence of the comment. Don't let time build. Go and go quickly. Isn't it interesting? Every time you talk to a couple who's been married for any great amount of time, 40 years, 50 years and beyond, when they are asked, how did you do it? Because in our culture, it's becoming more and increasingly a smaller group of people that are able to be married that long. When they're asked, how did you do it? Inevitably, one of the most common things that's said, we didn't go to bed mad. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Get it resolved. Deal now. Because if you don't, that's exactly where bitterness has an opportunity to grow because you've created a space in your life, and this is what the last part of that phrase is, 
Don't give the devil a foothold. Isn't it interesting, by the way? That word, don't give the devil a foothold, is the exact same word used in Romans 12, leave room for the wrath of God. It's a very interesting verb. What it's saying is, is that you are actively supposed to do something that allows someone else to do something as well. Meaning, I actively leave room for what? For the wrath of God to deal. So I'm actively pausing, I'm actively leaving space to allow God to do something. Watch this. If I will choose to continue to be sinful in my anger, I am equally actively leaving space for Satan to do something as well. That is a powerful word image to me. We don't have time to go there enough today, but I will tell you, we will spend more time talking about anger, talking about bitterness, talking about forgiveness because it's so, so important to the way we roll. Why are we supposed to live this way in your notes? Don't give the devil room in your life. Don't give the devil any space in your life. Number three, disengage from stealing and engage in productivity. Disengage from stealing and engage in productivity. Chapter 428, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. I know another game changer, don't steal. Like, Todd, you are blowing my mind today. (laughs) Don't lie, don't be angry sinfully, and don't steal. Crazy. Here's here's what I love actually about this verse. It, it says, it does say that. It says not to steal. But do you see how quickly it turns the corner and says to, to disengage? That's what stealing is, taking things that aren't yours. To disengage from taking things that aren't yours. And how quickly it says, but to engage not just in nothing. Those who are stealing should stop it. Period. Those who are stealing should steal no longer, but should use their hands to do something productive. Why? So they can have something to share. As I was reading this passage, it was so convicting to me as a parent. Like, ah! Because when I see things in my kid's life, how quick am I to say, stop it! And I can say that even nicer. Stop it. So it doesn't have to be angry. Stop it. We're we're not going to do that anymore. But what I was convicted by was stop it. Stop this kind of behavior. Disengage from doing this, which is opposed to God and opposed to your parents. But here's the interesting thing. I usually leave it there. Inevitably, you've had probably one or more kids that have struggled with stealing to some degree. Whether it was you were at the drugstore together, you walk home and in the backseat they're playing with something. You're like, what is that? Oh, yeah, none of us paid for it. You just walked out with it. Great, okay? Whatever the issue is and how, they've struggled with stealing to some degree, and you went back, and you took care of it, and you dealt. But that was kind of the end of it. You basically said, we need, to, we need to not take that which is not ours, period. What does Paul say? Not only that, that's, that's step one, but you should actually use your hands, use your skill, use your time for something productive. Why? So you can be generous. Isn't that the opposite of stealing? Stealing is I need for me. Being generous is I'm giving to you. That is brilliant parenting. 
Not just stopping one behavior, but engaging in a behavior for this greater good that my children were built for, that I was built for. To live in God's culture of his household. How incredibly cool. This is what God is after in our lives, that we would become a people of generosity. And what he's saying is, in order to be a person who's generous, it has to go this far upstream that if you're living in a way counter to that, it begins with stopping, it begins with disengaging from that, but not just creating a vacuum. Often in our parenting, we create a vacuum by saying, don't do this, but we don't lead our kids even to more than just not doing something, but to doing something actually productive and honoring to God. And if you're feeling super convicted by that, just join the team, because I was already there. Really cool, really cool illustration. So stop stealing, start working productively. Why? In your notes, so that you can be generous toward others. Number four, disengage from disencouragement. I'm sorry, called discouragement. I can't read. You're like, disencouragement, that's a word? Awesome, I need to start using that. Disengage from discouragement and engage in encouragement. There's just lots of disses and ins that throw me off there. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let's unpack this a minute. The word translated here is unwholesome. It's translated actually throughout the New Testament more, more often as the word rotten, like thinking of food. It's rotten, so it therefore has now become useless. It's become something that's good for nothing. When you think about that concept, I don't know you, I, I really love fruit, but the minute that fruit turns bad, ugh, I mean, w- would we ever go, oh, I'll just leave it in the bowl? You're like, no, that's stuff we throw away. It's unless they're bananas, and my daughters make amazing banana bread, but I'm sorry I told you that because they only make it for me. <laughs> hmm? okay. So outside of spoiled bananas, I don't know what any rotten fruit's good for. Just get rid of it or feed it to the pigs. You know, it's just not good for anything. And that's kind of the concept. So here's what that would extend to. It would definitely include the idea of vulgarity. It's not appropriate in the household of God. It would include locker room talk, with which we've become well acquainted with recently. Okay? And, and watch this. And generally, anything that tears people down. That's unwholesome talk. And, and let it be clear that this, in the new household, in the new culture of being in the family of God, God does have an expectation of how we use our words. Because why? Because words are powerful. Words can, inc- in, it, it's almost like words, uh, I love, um, what's the word, comparing things to nitroglycerin. Because nitroglycerin is a powerful thing, no matter what, powerful to heal, Right? You take nitroglycerin pills if you have heart problems, but also pretty powerful to destroy. It's called bombs. And, and there's really not much in the middle. Words, we can say a lot of surfacey stuff. There is a lot in the middle, but man, I will tell you, it will not take you long for me to ask you when someone said something to you that you've never forgotten. Sadly enough, they're usually words that brought you down. But every once in a while... There are also words you'll never forget that built you up. God says, in my family, how you use your words is really important. And they should always be for the purpose of building each other up. Think of in your life, is there someone in your life you know who is an encourager? 
Just think for a second. In your relational world, is there someone in your life who just really consistently encourages people? Maybe you, maybe others, whoever encourages you. We have one. Uh, From our family group up in the high desert, the minute I start saying this, my wife and my daughters, they think of Jana. Because Jana, uh, this this, uh, wife and mom in our family group, literally within every circle she's in, she's a teacher. Her classroom, her fellow teachers, her administrator, her her church family, our family group. People, if you were to ask them one at a time, hey, how would you characterize Jana? Instantly, she's an encourager like no one else. And you know what's interesting about Jana? She doesn't encourage stuff just to encourage it. Or she doesn't encourage things that are like, well, I'm going to make something up because I really want you to feel good. Guess what she'll do? She'll find something of value and worth about who you are or something you've done or a decision you made. And here's what she's going to do. She's going to elevate it in front of everyone. Jenna, I've not been in many situations, even even privately, she would say things that are encouraging. But I will tell you, her, her forte is in a crowd. And she will pick something up and she will exalt it in that group, in that conversation and say, but Todd... It's when you did. It's what you said. It's how you're, you're you know, gifted by God. And it's just, I will tell you, Joanna and Todd and my kids love being around Jana. Because she just builds people up. I, I realized something interesting literally in the last service while I was teaching on this point. Isn't it interesting that people who struggle with insecurities how it's hard for them to encourage. I was, I was asking this question to our last service. Why do you fail to encourage people? B- because you and I do. Like, there's an opportunity in a conversation, in something that happens, in your home, with friends, whoever. There's an opportunity to say, and, and, and that's what the word's here using, to build people up. And I even love the word encourage. When you break it down, it means to give Courage. It's beautiful. There's power there. Why do you and I skip opportunities to encourage? And if you're honest with yourselves, I mean, for some of us, myself included, it's just totally missed it. It was like a softball. I totally could have gone, oh, this is such a great thing about you, and I just kept silent. But then often, if it's not the fact that you just missed it in that moment, and my hope would be if you miss it in the moment, you're on your phone shooting a text. You're on your computer shooting an email. You are doing something in museums, getting out a pen and paper, and you're writing a note. I mean, you're doing something. I'm sorry about the museum thing. I know some of you really got hurt by that. Actually, I love cards, so don't take that offensively. But I hope you're going backwards and saying, I, I miss the opportunity to encourage you. But I sure want to. But think of it this way. The other times that we miss encouraging others is often because we're insecure. And for me to say something that builds you up somehow in our mind takes away from me. Think of also over here, words that tear tear others down. Where do those usually come from? Insecure people. That's a powerful link powerful link to consider. If that is something that is not characteristic of you, it is worth asking that question. Stop looking out the window, start looking in the mirror. It's worth asking the question, God, am I an insecure person that I don't know how to encourage other people? And it tends to be what I tend to do is tear them down, whether to their face or others. That is an important question. And God says, in my family, we don't roll that way. 
We stop foolish talk that tears people down, and instead, we choose words that build them up. And what a great, great father that encourages the, this in his kids. Why should we encourage one another? People should benefit from hearing what you have to say. Finally today, number five, disengage from opposition and engage in collaboration. Disengage from opposition, engage in collaboration. And these are very big overarching terms. Why choose those? And I chose them because we're covering so much ground in these last couple of verses. It's almost insane to try to give them even a, a, a heading, but let's try. It says this, verse 31, 32, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That's the opposition. That's the way we lived opposed to one another. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Really great, right? Over, I mean, very clear distinction. One thing is definitely what rivals do to each other. One thing is what people who love each other, how they treat one another. It's super clear. Great divide. Within this question, I want to make sure I don't leave. I've actually waited till now to bring this out. If there's something I've mentioned about a behavior and action, or even in this last part, it's like, man, I am, I am not really disengaging from that kind of rage, or I'm not really engaging in this kind of compassion and kindness. Let me say this. Let me make this really clear. If the, anything I've said today out of this passage isn't a clear part of your character right now. Please don't infer, connect a dot I've never said today, don't infer that that means you're, you're not really in God's family then. Because the text doesn't say that. The text actually told us back in Ephesians 1 through 3 that you are a part of God's family if you have simply responded to the great grace that God's given you through Jesus. Not through keeping a list. That's called religion. We're done with that. What we're talking about today is this is how the household works. You've been adopted into a new home. Adoptive parents never would let a child live the way they lived before in that destructive pattern, but instead would say, here's a better way. That's what God is saying here. Here's the way I always designed you to live. And guess what? If you're not living according to it yet, we have room to grow. Just like you look at your kids, because your kids disobeyed doesn't make them not your kids anymore. Otherwise, we would have plenty of orphans roaming the streets. <laughs> oh, by the way, and so would have you been. So obedience in this passage today is not a connection to relationship. What it is, obedience, disengaging from these old things and engaging in the new, is God saying, there's a culture in my household. This is how I want you to live. And here's the great news. You can do this with this method connected to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can do this. I find this so incredibly encouraging. In that whole list of things, we don't have in time to pack them all, but I wanted to at least bring your mind bring you to this last phrase, what it say, and forgive one another just as in Christ God has forgiven you. What a great, God's basically saying this, do what I've done for you. Let me be your example. And I, I came across this quote a long time ago. You'll hear me say it again sometime in the future, but it's powerful enough to remind you of today. It's not on screen. You just have to listen, but this is what it says. We are most like beasts when we kill. 
We are most like men when we judge and most like God when we forgive. That rings in me like very few things on the subject of forgiveness. We are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge, but we are most like God when we forgive. Just like God in Christ, forgive one another. And why would we do that? We are no longer rivals, but we're now teammates. Let me bring our time together this way by walking over the chalkboard. This is our, our, um, our game plan for the week, but I want to tell you this. Right out of, I told you this last week. Right out of college, I taught at a Christian school. I have no idea why they hired me. I was only four years older than the seniors I was teaching, so I was a little bit of a trip. Um, but within that, I had a great, great experience there, and I'm so grateful I got to do that. Well, one day, and, and I don't know, if you're here today and you're a teacher, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this, because I only had this one. Never happened before, never happened again. But this one particular day, I'm teaching Bible class, and, and I'm at a chalkboard, a, a, a dry erase board. And as I'm doing it, I, I can't remember the total context. What was happening was I was talking something about our walk with the Lord, our life with God, and maybe something about how it's evaluated. Something about how we evaluate our growth or our maturity. And on this side were the things that we're not doing, and on this side were the things now that we were. A little bit like what we've disengaged from and what we've engaged in. And I remember being at the board and writing down a list of things, using myself as an example. Well, I don't do this, I don't do this, and I don't, and I I literally, I had this moment right there at the whiteboard, the whole class just evaporated. I have no idea where they went. But in my mind, I was now having a conversation a little bit with myself and a lot with God, and I was walking out the idea that, God, I have been evaluating my life primarily based upon what I don't do for you. And very little on what I do. The point of today's passage is that we are called Indeed, to disengage, to have, as it were, a series of things we no longer do because they're not appropriate to who we are. But how often have you and I evaluated our walk with the Lord primarily based on the things we're not doing? What if your son or daughter evaluated their relationship with you based on what they're not doing? Mom and dad, I don't lie. Mom and dad, I don't steal Mom and dad, I don't get angry. And they go on this list, and every time you'd hear Junior say this, you'd go, oh, that's great. And at the end of reading off this list, they'd say, here are all the things I'm not doing for you. And you go, great. But the automatic next thought would be, what are you doing? I'm just sitting here in the corner. I think that's what God senses when we develop a life based on what we're not doing. And not at all considering, but God, what do you want me to engage in? Have a long list of what I've disengaged from. What do you want me to engage in? And that life, because remember, in Jesus' parable of the servants that were given these, these resources, these talents from their master, it was actually the servant who did nothing with his that Jesus said, the master said, you wicked, lazy servant. I dare not evaluate my life primarily from what I've disengaged from. It's part of the equation, but I dare not let that be the period. That's this part 
And now, God, help me engage in this. And the great news that we've seen today, God wants to partner with us by the presence and the power of his spirit that we will do those things. Look at our game plan this week. Live out God's team culture. Live out God's team culture this week toward one another. Let's pray. Father God, we want to say thank you. Your word is getting nitty-gritty, getting real in our lives We have found out some great things in the first part of Ephesians of whose we are, and now we're finding out how to live that life out now. Thank you, thank you, thank you that it's not go it on your own and just try harder. God, we are done with religion. That's what that message was. Instead, we are so grateful not only for the truth, but for the power from your spirit, the indwelling spirit we don't want to grieve, but we want to bring joy to. Help us live that life this week. If you're here today and you would have to say, Todd, I'm really not a part of the family yet. I'm not really on the team. Then I want to tell you there's great news. There's great news. And and the way that you become a part of the team, hear this clearly, the way you become a part of the team is not by doing and disengaging and engaging. We do those things once we have been adopted into the family. And so it begins with that first step is admitting admitting that you're a sinner, living life on your terms. It's believing, believing that Jesus is the only Savior available. What he did at your place, living a sinless life, dying a sacrificial death, raising supernaturally on the third day, he is the Savior who can make things right and see his choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I'm gonna follow your steps. I'm gonna follow after you. And I I encourage you, there is no starting point other than that. Make that first step today. And if you do, I want to encourage you, tell someone. Tell me. Tell someone in your relational world. Tell someone, I I responded to Jesus today. I pray those ABCs. I'm going to start moving his way. How great. We would love to rejoice with you. Father, thank you. You are rich in mercy. We are grateful to be recipients. Help us walk in your power this week, and we pray in Jesus' name.